I invite you to uh, turn with me to Revelation chapters 4 and 5. You'll find that uh, beginning on page 1030 in your pew Bible. As I mentioned last Sunday, we have a two-part message, but it really is a single sermon just in two parts. So uh, even as we read Revelation 4 and 5 last week and only preached on Revelation 4, uh, point two is this morning, and so we're going to read this text again fully. We stood as we read of the throne room of heaven last Sunday. I'm going to invite you to do the same today. Let's stand in honor of God's word as we read and recognize that we are on holy ground in this particular text because of what is being described here. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look inside it. 
And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So reads the word of God. Please be seated. We were asked last week to soak in Revelation 4 this past week. So I need to ask admittedly, rhetorically at the moment. How did it go? What came of your meditating on the throne room of the true and living God? Any benefits? We discussed this for a while at Lessons in Prayer last Wednesday evening and had some very good insight shared from ones who were just soaking in that text, seeking to drink in what it looks like according to God's Word in the very presence of God. So what's come of your meditating on the throne room of the true and living God? Has it, has it reshaped your thought at all this week? 
Has it reshaped your understanding of, of who you are and of how we live as God's people, as His family in this world? Has it given you a, a, a new or refreshed perspective on any hardships you face? Any challenges? Seeing, knowing that there's no way that the struggles and suffering we experience in this life could possibly exceed the strength and the sovereign rule of this God to address, to use for our good, to, to resolve with, with perfect justice where required, or with perfect comfort where needed. Have you seen these things? Have you tasted them? Have you seen that there is nothing in this life that is beyond the ability of this God to handle? Chase, I'm going to embarrass you this moment. Ten years today, right? Ten years ago today was when Chase was diagnosed with cancer. And given no good chance to be here with us ten years later, but here we are rejoicing in ten years of God's faithfulness with the Ewalt family. How do we make sense of that? How can that be pointed out in a public meeting as some sort of a celebration of joy? My friends, apart from what we see in Revelation 4, it's not possible. But because of what we see there, it is. Have you tasted that this week? Have you been stretched in your understanding of who God is? Not just a much bigger one of us. We read that in Hosea 9 this morning in almost that same language. I'm not one of you, God says through the prophet. He's not just a great big one of us. He's entirely other. One of the things that was noted from people who have been reflecting on Revelation 4 this week, is that the one who's seated on the throne is never described. The closest we get is the fact that the scroll was in his right hand. But we don't know what that looks like, what that means. No description given the one seated on the throne. It's completely other. A being of incomprehensible immensity and beauty of inconceivable purity and kindness, a being of unlimited authority and power. Do we recognize what that means? We serve a God with unlimited power? Has it dawned on you that there is just no way possible 
to overestimate the greatness of this God. That needs to dawn on us. Philosophers have recognized that for some time. It's the, the foundation of a particular line of argument for the existence of God. He's the greatest conceivable being. There is no way to overestimate the greatness of the God that we meet in Revelation 4 and 5. Well, these are just a few of the things that need to lodge in our minds through this study of these two chapters. They need to lodge in our hearts and take root there. These are some of the more important takeaways from the book of Revelation as a whole. What we learn here in chapters 4 and 5. And I don't recall if I said it last Sunday, but I've said it many times before and in our discussions on this book. This is the heart and soul of the book of Revelation. Chapters 4 and 5. Chapters 4 and 5 make sense of the whole. They anchor the whole of this book. They form the foundation of our lives in time and eternity. And they are what we need day in and day out to live well in this world. To worship and obey and endure, which is the title of our series and the theme of Revelation. To worship and obey and endure in this life to the very end. This is what we need. Chapters 4 and 5 are what we need. Chapters 4 and 5 make sense out of everything that doesn't make sense in this world. We're regrounded in what is right and good and best and worthy of our attention in this world. And we recognize the severity of rebelling against that which is where this world is. Everything that we need to make sense of this world is rooted and anchored in this text. That needs to take root in our hearts and minds. But now it's time to get into chapter 5 together. Before we do, I just want to mention something that uh, Revelation chapter 4 verse 1, for those who hold to a pre-tribulation rapture, this is the place where it happens. Jesus' invitation to John to come up here is seen as an invitation to the church to depart this world, so they're not present from this point forward. We're going to point out those kinds of things as we move through the text, where different ones see different things happening in this book. But having said that, and not to diminish the importance of that particular insight or this particular passage with regard to that line of thought, pre-tribulationism, I want to re-emphasize that this book is not given to us in order to set in order the events of the end times before they happen. 
We've said this a couple of other times in previous messages in this series, but each time I say this, I will probably mention it again. This book is not given to us in order to put in order the events that are still yet to happen before this world comes to an end. This book is given to us to understand what's going on in this world and to be equipped and established to continue on in our worship, in our obedience, and our endurance in the faith, regardless of what happens. These events can be ordered differently, as we pointed out in a message a couple of weeks ago. But putting things in order is not why we have it. Being strengthened in our walk with the Lord during increasingly difficult days, that's why we have this book in our Bibles. So let's dig into chapter 5 now. Having soaked in the setting of chapter 4, we're now ready for the action in chapter 5. Each chapter has its discernible theme, as we saw last Sunday, a vision of the indescribable majesty of God is the title that hangs over chapter 4. And as we move into chapter 5, we're calling it, What Happened in the Glorious Presence of God? What did John see? What happened in the glorious presence of God? Three catalysts of different types move the story along here. This outline comes from D.A. Carson. I'll acknowledge that from the pulpit here. It's so simple, but it's so clear. Three catalysts of different types move the story along in chapter 5, move along the action. There's first the scroll in verse 1, then there is the search in verses 2 to 4, and then the solution, verses 5 to 14. And these are the anchor points or the turning points in the action happening on the stage. So let's move into this and look at the scroll, first of all. The indescribably majestic one who is on the throne, indescribably majestic, is holding a scroll in his right hand, the text says. That's the hand of power. So that power transfers in some ways to this scroll. It's a scroll that communicates power because of who's holding it and how. And the scroll had writing on both sides, we're told. Just like the scroll that we read about in Ezekiel's prophecy, chapter 2, verse 10. As many have pointed out, it's not easy to write on the back side of a scroll. Scroll was usually made of parchment, which means the papyrus strips went the right direction for writing on the front side, and they went the wrong direction for writing on the back side. They were vertical, and you had to bump across the strips in order to write on the back side. It was not easy to do. So there are really only two reasons why someone would do this. Either you're too poor to afford a second scroll, so you've got to use the backside, or you need to have the whole of a lengthy and important document all in one place. So you'll use the back. It's no small matter that we're told that the back was used here. And I think we can be pretty confident 
from what we've seen so far that poverty was not the issue here. This is an important document that has many details to it, and the scroll is written all over, we're told, with that information. So this two-sided scroll was also sealed with seven seals. These details work together to convey authority, surety, completeness. Also in the ancient world, a will was sealed by seven witnesses, all of whom hopefully would be present when the will had to be opened to affirm its genuineness. So all of this in combination with what follows about these six seals and this scroll makes it seem like this scroll contains the purposes and plans of God for all the ages, His, his purposes in, in judgment and in blessing. If we put together what we're seeing from the beginning and where the scrolls go, where the, the seals go as they are slit, that is probably what this document includes. The plan and purpose of God for the ages in its fullness because of the two-sided writing. Sealed with seven seals so it's, it's infinitely testified that this is His plan and purpose. And we'll see that that's what's going on as these seals are opened beginning in the next chapter. So that's the, sea, the, the scroll. Let's move into this second section of catalyst called the search. In verses 2 through 4, look at verse 2. And John saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? A mighty angel with a loud voice in this setting, calling out, who's worthy to open the scroll? Who's going to slit the seals and enact the plan and purpose of God for the ages? If a mighty angel like this couldn't do it, who could? Verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. That's part of the story here. I think we've already heard the answer to the question. But there's something in the story first. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine living in a universe where there's a God like the one described in chapter 4, the one we've been thinking about and pondering already this morning, a God like this in the universe, John's in his very presence, The scroll containing his plan and purpose is available and it can't be opened. This is a holy, almighty, sovereign creator God worthy of glory and honor and power. 
and he has a plan for the ages, but it's sealed up and it can't be enacted. British philosopher and avowed atheist Bertrand Russell wrote that man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. He went on to say, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's salvation be safely built. Wow. That's a grim statement, isn't it? And John was in no better place here, standing in the very throne room of God, when it seemed like nobody anywhere could open the seals. In his own words, verse 4, I began to weep loudly. There's John's response. This is the tough fisherman, son of thunder. This is John weeping loudly because of this scene. That's got to that's sink in first before we move on. This is sobbing and gasping, snorting kind of weeping. John is distraught that the nature of such a dark confession as Bertrand Russell has given is a little picture into what a world looks like where there is no God. And John is right on the verge of that. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. There's a God of indescribable majesty and power, but for an excruciating moment here, it appeared that He may as well not exist. His plan for the ages was seven times sealed, and no one anywhere was worthy to open it. To unleash it. That's a hard picture to understand. But this isn't the end of the story. John's readers are now set up for the third catalyst and to appreciate the stunning reality of what happens next. The solution. One of the elders, in verse 5, urged John to stop weeping because there is one who is worthy, namely, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's an image from Genesis 49, where Jacob had prophesied that a, a lion-like ruling line would descend from his son Judah leading up to an abundant golden age under the ultimate king in that line. The root of David here also in verse 5 is an image of Messiah as well. An image that comes from Isaiah 11. There, the root of Jesse, David's father, 
complete with a description of a prosperous and peaceable kingdom over which this root of Jesse, this root of David, will reign. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, two Old Testament images rich with meaning are drawn together and intertwined here in the very presence of God. This messianic king that go all the way, goes all the way back to the promise of Jacob in his dying testament is now present right here in Revelation 5. And he can open the scroll. And it's seven seals, we learn, because he has conquered. He has conquered that which would keep the plan and purpose of God from being realized. He's a victor. He's an overcomer. And as we've already seen in chapter 4, verse 11, we'll see here in verse 9 and verse 12, he's worthy. He's worthy. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So John need weep no longer. Instead, he turned to look for this lion. But there, even closer to the throne than the four living creatures, was a lamb standing as though it had been slain. That's a gruesome image, right? We can read about how a lamb was sacrificed on the altar under Old Testament law. And seeing in this scene a lamb looking as if it had been slain, that's almost disgusting. Except that that's not the whole picture. No, this lamb was standing, we are told. This lamb was standing. So this lamb, though slain, had risen from the dead. And we're told here that it had seven horns, which is complete ruling authority. That picture established throughout the Old Testament and we'll come up again here in Revelation. Horns reflecting authority, kingly authority. This lamb had seven horns. And it had seven eyes. All seeing this lamb. And these eyes, we're told right here in verse 6, are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So like the seven torches of fire back in chapter 4, this likely represents the Holy Spirit the all-seeing eye of God in this world, missing nothing. Yet, this was a slaughtered lamb, even so. So it was an all-powerful, all-knowing, sacrificial lamb, already slain, but now risen. And John's going to try to describe that in words. John's going to try to describe that.
Paul mentioned to us on Wednesday night that a professor of his had the class draw pictures of Revelation 4 and 5. That actually can be helpful. These are visual images. John's trying to describe what he's seeing. It's not primarily a linguistic text. It's supposed to awaken pictures in our minds. But I'll tell you what, when you try to draw a lion who is a lamb, but the lamb has been slain and resurrected, and now it's all-powerful, and it can see everything, and has complete ruling authority, so there's no weakness in this lamb who is a lion. That's going to stretch our artistic ability a bit, I think, isn't it? We can be sympathetic with John for the similes and metaphors that he's using throughout this description. How do you describe this? Strange image. But this happens in apocalyptic. Because the point is to put together things that we've not yet put together. To fit them in. And to understand that all of these rich images from the Old Testament come to bear on the very life of the people of God according to His plan and purpose, which is right now being held in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. Bottom line, this wasn't part lion and part lamb. This was both lion and lamb, a sacrificial offering and a ruling monarch all intertwined into one. That's what John saw. But keep listening. More impressive yet. This lion who is a lamb actually approached the throne revealing who he truly is. Look at verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. That's an amazingly bold expression. John can't even describe the one seated on the throne. This lion who is a lamb, slain and resurrected, all-powerful, all-seeing, walks up to the one on the throne and takes the scroll from his hand. This action prompted worship, just as it had to. It prompted worship from the four living creatures and from the 24 elders as they bore the prayers of the saints. This, this being, this lion who is a lamb, this is the solution. This is the solution. We have the scroll. We have the search. Who's worthy? Here he is. That was made evident from his action that prompted worship and then from the worship that followed. The third hymn, we're told in verse 9 that this is a new song. This is the song of salvation. And at this point, we have to pause for a moment and notice the, the increasing worship, just the, the escalating worship that's happening in Revelation 4 and 5. There's five hymns that appear in these two, two chapters. They're, they're set off as poems. They're, uh, the language is that they were saying these things, but saying them doesn't preclude singing them. It's not meaning to distinguish to say they weren't singing, they were just talking. They were affirming. This is what they were affirming. And almost certainly it was in music.
And it was an increasing group. It began with the four living creatures. And then it was the 24 elders. And then here, third song, those two groups together. Then the next one, myriad of angels. The inhabitants of heaven join in. And with the final one, it's all creation. There's a crescendo happening in Revelation 5 that I wish I could reflect with a voice. If I could start preaching in a normal voice and finish with what it must have been like in heaven, it would clear the room. You wouldn't sit and listen. That's not because of unpleasant content. But what does this sound like with myriads and myriads of angels and then the voices of all creation joining in? What does that chorus sound like? Ah, that's a little insert. For those who are trying to follow my notes in the booth, apologies. We're, we're back on page now, all right? They sang a new song, verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? For you were slain. You paid the penalty of sin. You are the one who turned this universe on a dime. And from an absolutely tragic, evil, irreversible situation, You've brought about redemption and blessing. Worthy are you to open the scroll and its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. From dead and condemned objects of wrath to redeemed, reconciled with God and reigning on the earth. That's what this lion who is a lamb has affected for God's image-bearing creatures. They shall reign on the earth, verse 10, just as they were originally created to do, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. This is where the lion who is a lamb conquered. This is where he became an overcomer. It was at the cross where he ransomed sinners, making them a kingdom and priests, priests to the living God. This is what he did to restore all creation. He went to the cross. This is what he did to set all things right. He went to the cross. This is what he did to make it as though his people had never sinned. Think about that. Those who trust in Christ, he makes it as though you have never sinned. Let that sink in. Because if we are not that pure and holy and clean, we can't have fellowship with this God. To be reconciled to this God means that our sin problem has been taken care of to that degree. So he made it as though we'd never sinned, except that we have. 
So how does that work? I think the whole point is that now we have an even greater understanding of the greatness of His glory, seeing that He has been able to ransom and restore all things to Himself through His sacrifice. When we read in Romans 6 that, or Romans 5, that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, such that we can actually ask the question, shall we sin that grace may abound? It seems like through our sin, we're better off than we would have been if we had never sinned. That's where that question comes from. I've often pointed out as we're studying that passage that if you don't get to the place of asking that question, shall we go ahead and sin that grace may abound? And asking it from a sincere heart, you haven't understood the magnitude of the grace of God that frees us from our sin. I feel like I'm better off having sinned and been reconciled to God than I would have been if I had never sinned. Now, what's Paul's answer to that? May it never be. No, absolutely not. But the grace of God not only cleanses us from sin, but it reconciles us to Him in such a way that we can actually feel like we're better off. How do I mean that? Well, now we actually know that it's possible to be estranged from this God and yet by His own grace and in testimony to His power and to His glory, reconciled to Him. That's amazing. Amen? That is amazing. How is that possible? So it's made like we never sinned, except that we did sin, so... Now we actually have been freed to recognize the greatness of the glory of this God all the more. A God who would humble Himself and take on the penalty of His rebellious creatures in order to reconcile them to Himself and include them in this scene. And by the way, this is called particular atonement. Jesus didn't just make salvation generally available through His death on the cross. If that were the case, there would be no guarantee that some from every tribe and language and people and nation would receive it. No, He purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people, and nation. As Jonah said in the belly of the fish, salvation belongs to the Lord. That is His work. And He ransomed for Himself people from every tribe and language and nation. Well, friends, it's from here on that the worship just explodes in this chapter. It mushrooms. And from this point on, for the rest of the book, the Lamb will be worshipped right along with Him who is seated on the throne, and usually the description will come together from this point forward. Several times they'll be talked about as the one who is and was and is to come, and then we'll actually get to a place where it's just the one who is and was because He's come. It's fun to see those transitions in the text. We'll get to that.
He's worshipped first here in verse 12 by myriads of angels who joined the elders and the living creatures to shout, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive. And here comes the sevenfold affirmation at the pinnacle of worship in heaven. Power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Right at the heart of it all, He's worthy because he was slain. And he's worthy to receive all the blessings and benefits that exist in the very presence of God because he has accomplished the will and purpose of God through his saving work. Then we're told that every creature in all creation joined in the fifth and final hymn in this progression, praising God and the Lamb, saying, verse 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might. There's a fourfold affirmation, one of those numbers of completeness in apocalyptic. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. So be it. Seal the deal. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And with that, the scene and the action come to a close, and we've been granted a picture of what we most need to see and to know. So the bottom line message here is clear, isn't it? God's purpose in redemption and judgment is achieved through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And through Jesus' reign, God's plan for creation will be completed and His glory displayed. But there's more, as we've seen. Back in chapter 3, we read right at the close of the letter to the Laodiceans, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. It's not just to reign with him, but it's a fuller image than that. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, this very throne in heaven is our destiny in Christ. <laughs> How do you wrap your mind around that? We do suffer in this life. But as we persevere in faith, we conquer, we, we overcome. And when we overcome, we reign with Him like this on His throne. We actually enter into this scene in Revelation 4 and 5. We become part of it. But you know, it's, it's more than that. And Paul was referring to this as, as he extended a greeting this morning. We're not just included into this. We're not just reigning with Him and seated on His throne. 
We marry into this picture. This is the bridegroom. And who's the church? The bride. We don't get here and stand on the periphery somewhere and watch with awe and, and applaud as though our hands make no noise and no one can see us and we don't make no difference. The church is the bride in this setting. As we progress through this book and get to Revelation 19 and the marriage supper of the Lamb, that's our wedding day to the groom. Biblical marriage, human marriage is given to us to picture this reality. This is what's real. When we get to heaven, Jesus said, there will be no more marriage or being given in marriage. The metaphor will go away. The reality will remain. We're getting set up for that right here. We marry into this picture and stand center stage with this one seated on the throne and the Lamb. And don't think for a moment that it's that prominent position to which we're drawn. Not in the presence of a God who has exhibited the humility of this God. All glory and praise goes to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And we are folded in as testimonies to His grace and goodness. Ephesians calls us trophies of God's grace. This is where His grace is demonstrated in us. This scene is happening right now in heaven, and we live in light of it here on earth. But when we arrive there, when we arrive there, we join in with it, and we're drawn into the middle of what's going on to the praise of God's grace. So, back to our two questions from last Sunday. Do we really believe this? That's question number one. And number two, do our lives show it? The story is told of some 49ers who were digging for gold on a western mountain. They found a huge vein of gold and knew that they needed more supplies to extract it. So they marked the spot, agreed together not to mention it to anyone, and they returned to the village to make preparations. Three days later, as they headed back to their find with all of their equipment in tow, most of the town followed them. They couldn't believe it. So they wondered, which one of us told? The town folk assured them that none of them had broken confidence. They could just tell that they'd found gold by the smiles on their faces and the way they behaved over the past three days. When we discover gold, when we inherit a fortune, changes us and the change is evident to all when we see and actually believe what we've read today when we're encouraged and our confidence is stoked 
that God truly is worthy of all worship and praise. He's worthy of our sacrificial obedience. Even if it feels costly to offer it. When we see and actually believe this, it changes us. We don't have to work on that change. We drink in the glories of the gospel that are ours in Christ, and it changes us. It shows in our lives. It shows in how we speak. It shows in how we behave. It shows in the smiles on our faces. Scripture teaches that. Jesus taught his disciples that. On the night that he was arrested, it's by your love for one another that this world is going to recognize who you are and who I am. It changes us. So I finish today with that question, or those two questions. Do you believe it? And does it show? We're going to gather at the table of the Lord now to remember the death that is being celebrated in heaven in this scene. What we're remembering and proclaiming here is what made Jesus worthy to open the scrolls and enact the plan and purpose of God for all eternity. Rather than lead you in prayer right now, I'm going to give you an opportunity for silent prayer until we begin passing the plates and distributing the elements. An opportunity to prepare your heart for worship of the true and living God by remembering the death of Christ and how it has reconciled you to God. If there's some among us this morning who haven't yet trusted Christ, know that you can do so right there in your seats. But let's talk about this a bit before you would participate in this remembrance. Just sit with us while we do it. Sit with the body of Christ. Sit with the bride while she anticipates her wedding day through this act of remembrance that Jesus instilled on that same night that he was betrayed. So let's take these next few moments as the musicians are coming forward and as the servers are gathering just in silent prayer to prepare our hearts for communion. Heavenly Father, enable now our remembrance in a manner worthy of the sacrifice that was offered and enable our proclamation in sincere anticipation of the day when we will step into this scene in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.